Good. Welcome. Good. Thank you for so having me, man. You you've been traveling for how long? I haven't done the math, but it I it was well it was I think I crested the thirty hour threshold, like a two nighter thing, and then heading west. Heading west is easier than heading east. Yes. But it you're still just like in the middle of one of the flights, I'm just like shaking. I was like, Man, I haven't had enough water and then I have too much water and then I just have to run to the bathroom to throw it up. It was yeah. like one of those mm. Yeah. It ain't one of those things. It was not my worst travel experience, but just happy to be home. So you were in Budapest for what, two weeks? Uh, yeah, like 13 days for the World Championships. And when, when he says yep. World Championships, yep. uh, track, track and field. Track and field, yep. And guys, Trey Hardy, if you didn't know, is a retired Olympian himself, uh, yeah. silver silver medal. Mm-hmm. And you're going for NBC to commentate on? On all the field events. That's so, awesome. Yeah, so basically I was I didn't make the 2016 team, got hurt uh, in the middle, and the, one of the producers sent me a, a message. I landed in Austin, and he's like, hey, you want to come back out to the track tomorrow? We'd love to, like, put you in the mix and see what you got. And I never expressed any interest in doing that. I was like, hey, sorry, I'm, I'm in Austin, maybe next time. And he's like, no, we'll fly back out. We want, we want to basically test you out and see yes. if you're, you can do it. Didn't want to do it. And my wife's like, you're, you're going back. Like, I'm not going to – basically, I'm not going to sit around with you all summer here. <laughs> like, go back and check it out. Sounds, so, like a, sounds like a wife comment. Yeah, yeah. so the next day, um, the next day, like 3 o'clock, I was in Eugene, Oregon, on the track with a mic in my hand kind of too dumb to be nervous. And then two days later, same producers yelling at me as I'm walking to the airport to my, to my Uber. Hey, do you want to go to Rio? And at that point I'm like, yup, let's do it. And so just kind of been doing it ever since. And it's, it wasn't something I saw on TV and wanted to do. And it wasn't like a passion or anything like that, but it really is such a cool experience for me to be able to do. And now it feels like I'm proud that I get to be like the steward of of the field events to bring that to people who number one love the sport but really honestly people who don't love the sport like people who just casual fan maybe the tv's on and they're like well what's what's going on here you know so i mean do you feel like you also get to defend the athletes when people are so quick to criticize on a on a poor performance and oh yeah 10 out of 10 like and especially what's going on now with Noah Lyles and the NBA and all this stuff. Like, it just feels like I'm a part of the media, but also a former athlete, like been there, done that. But have you weighed in? I did. Yeah, I just did. I've weighed in a couple of times. I've kind of stayed on the sidelines, but then now I've kind of weighed in on a couple of rant, not random, but like other like NBA content people who are, who are like chiming in. And, and I'm sorry, could you give the context of what now? Yeah. Or, so the, yeah. the fastest man on the planet, the, the, man that just won the 100-meter dash and the 200-meter dash at the World Championships, American Noah Lyles. For our country. For the United States of America. So, yeah, that's the hardest part about broadcasting. I can't say we or us. It is so hard. And we have like a a, a tip jar, basically. You have to put a dollar in every time you say it. And there's some some weeks where there's like 40, 50 bucks in there. It's wild. But um, so he he just, in a post-race interview, receiving his – I think he was getting his four by one medal. So he had three golds, four, anchored the four by one, won the 100, won the 200. The only man that's faster than him in, in the history of the world in the 200 is Usain Bolt. He's number two all time. It just, so he just says, yeah, it, it feels great to be a world champion and like a real world champion, you know, like, not like it doesn't make sense. The National Basketball Association, they give their trophy and they call it the World Championships or like, I'm king of the world, like after the Super Bowl or something like that. It's, it's a national league, and it doesn't, like, I'm a world champion. Everybody runs. I'm 
every country was here. They had a chance, and I beat them all. And then Kevin Durant clapped back real quick on Instagram and basically, like, put up a flare, and then a bunch of NBA superstars tagged on and were like, man, sit down. Like, oh, like, And then I think it was Gordon. Was his name Aaron Gordon? Like, six-foot-ten dude. Like can jump out of the out of the gym. He's explosive, and he's mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and I'll be the first to say some of the best athletes in the world play in the NBA. That is the most athletic and dema- athletically demanding, like problem solving sport, quick decisions. You got to be an athlete. I always thought Russell Westbrook would have been a great decathlete. Like mm-hmm. made sense. But yeah, he said he would beat him in a two hundred, and then ah, I'm just sitting on like the sidelines, just like mm, okay. I mean, this is good. It's good for the sport. Get some new eyeballs on it. Get some. Uh, Turpin, it's always nice. It's always good. But it, at this point, it, it's like those people who um, think they can win a point off of uh, Djokovic. Like, yeah, I could yeah. get in there. I played tennis in high school. I could win a point. No, you effing couldn't. No, you couldn't. Um, but anyway, my yeah, so my job is, like, to not be negative and catty and, like, call people out and compare. My only job, like, from the very beginning, like, hey, Trey, you're here to be positive. You're here to replace, you know – some people on the team that were kind of critical and negative and weren't going to change. And so we just want you to be positive and happy. And I'm like, that that's easy because I love this stuff. It's it's incredibly impressive every time to see it. And now it just feels like this great honor that I get to kind of – like I don't care if I get on camera. I don't care if, how much time I spend on the broadcast. But the time I do get, I really just take advantage of it and try to be authentic, which is just exci- – like I'm excited to see stuff. Is it is it hard to – and I'm speaking from what I used to do to now, I almost feel, it feels like imposter syndrome. Did, do you still, like, hey, that used to be me? I, I don't let myself cross that, the boundary back into, like, former athlete, Trey, because mm-hmm. then you get into, like, kind of, like, having a beer at the bar and talking about old P- PRs and, like, oh, I remember this time and this time and this was what I was thinking. And I try to stay away from that as, I, as much as I can. And I think about the best, you know, what I try to do is explain things in a way that would get – uh, my drunk aunt excited to me on the ca- next to me on the couch. Like that was the best analogy I ever got right when I was starting out. I was like, Hey, don't get too caught in the weeds, but like, how would you make your aunt, if your aunt sit next to you, she's had a few drinks. How would you get her excited about the discus or the pole vault or something like that and help her understand what just happened here. And so that's, that's kind of where I always come from it. And then I'll write like in big Sharpie, be happy or joyful or something positive just to like always revert back to, to that. Now being a decathlete, I'm assuming that makes you more well-rounded to commentate because you've done so many of the events, you've got an opinion on them all. All of them except hammer and triple jump, but I did train with hammer and triple jumpers. So when I'm throwing discus out there, I'm next to a hammer thrower and picking it up and I've thrown hammer a few times, not very far. And then triple jumped a couple times, but yeah, that pretty much is it. I think, from the producer standpoint at NBC, I had the appropriate background. It's mm-hmm. just, is this going to be a you know a deer in headlights situation, or is this going to be a guy we can just throw to? He can carry it and he can throw it back, kind of thing. But yeah, being a decathlete, you know, by nature you're just you're not like the best in the world at any one thing. You're just not bad at anything, you know, and you just pick stuff up quickly. And um, because you're not just great at anything you kind of have to be very technical you really got to understand it because you're not just going out there and walking people down and like jumping far you got to earn you earn it you know it's funny you say not a you know the best athletes in track and field though 
are the ones that can do a lot of things. Well, well, we're talking about the fastest man in the world. He's very good at that one thing where you're almost like the general manager. You can, you've got a, a wide breadth yeah. of, uh, uh, of experience. Yeah. So in, in 1912, um, uh, I think King Ferdinand of Sweden was handing out the medals mm-hmm. at the Olympics and Jim Thorpe won the all around yes. and he won the long jump and the high jump and all these other things. And he handed out his last medal to Jim Thorpe. And he says, you, sir, are the greatest athlete in the world. Mm-hmm. Put a pin in it. And then for the rest of time, that's been the moniker of like the Olympic or world champion in the decathlon. They're the greatest athletes in the world. And just for what it encompasses, I think that's kind of an attractor for some guys too. Like, yeah, I'm a good athlete. I want to do this. And it ain't easy. Like, it's not this like, yeah, I'm fast. It's just going to take me a couple of years to get real fast. Um, it's a, it's a grind. Like it is, it's hard that there's metaphors galore for it, but golf is a real, really good analogy. No one just picks up a golf club first time and shoots, you know, under par. And even if you do shoot under par, there's always that one or two strokes where you're like, Oh man, that three putt, or man, I missed the green here. Or I had to, I had to, you know, go up and down. It could have been a lot better. And it kind of keeps you addicted. You know, and you got to have a bunch of shots in your bag, a bunch of clubs. Yeah. You got to play in different wet. You're playing against the weather. You're kind of playing against other people, but not really. You know, like you're really playing against par. Um, and that's the decathlon too. So it's a bunch of cut from the same cloth kind of kind of bros. For for the listeners, break down all the events that go into a uh, decathlon. Yeah, so it's not kayaking or biking or, or yeah, it's not that. That's usually the first question. Shooting. Yeah, yeah. it's usually the first question. Oh, what kind of bike do you ride? And I was like, I don't own a bike, bruh. Um, so it's 10 events over two days, and it breaks down the same way every time. There's five events first day, five events second day. First, first does day. That, does that ever change, the order of them? It, will, it never changes in the order, but sometimes there are weather happens, things happen, and then the scores get a little, they get put in a different category, but there are three-day decathlons. It just has to be 48 hours from the start to the finish. Mm-hmm. Weather is the only excuse for it to, to kind of roll over to three days. But um, it's the 100, the long jump, the shot put, the high jump, and the 400. That's day one. And then the next day is the 110 hurdles, discus, pole vault, javelin, and 1500. And so it's just nine speed power explosive events and then one just ball buster. F- favorite event? Uh, pole vault, 100%. So that was all I did in high school. That was like yes. first, first love. That thing's cool. It's not like the others. I want to learn how to do that. And I got okay at it. I was, in, I was from Alabama, so like I was good for Alabama, but not worthy of a scholarship anywhere, you know? And uh, got to college, got a book scholarship to Mississippi State, got to college, and then they were like, hey, you, you're fast. You already know how to pole vault. Hurdles look okay. You're going to train for the decathlon. And I'm like, oh, I'd never really trained before. You know, I just picked up a pole and pole vaulted every day um, and just hated it for like five or six months, like until I did my very first one. And then it was like, oh, oh, this is it. I you like can, this. You can dominate. Uh, not even that. I just – I think I finished like eighth place at the Texas Relays, my very first one. But it was still, um, I got to compete over 10 things. And I got this like point total. And I saw guys that were NCAA champions and had won conference titles. And I was like, I'm better than those guys. I think I can do this, you know? And it was like, let's just keep these up. Let's see how many, like how quick can I get good? You know, how 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 many points can I score next time? It's like a round of golf. Like I got I wanted to get back out there and, and do it again. Event you hated the most. Uh, I think there's two hates. There's like, Oh, 
hate, like this is going to suck, and that's 1,500. I, I knew done. you were going to say it. I knew you were going to say it. I don't Love think it. anybody's favorite is that. But no. it's, it's a, at the end of a, a real grueling process. No matter how perfect it's going, your tank's empty, and you're always running for something or running from somebody. Like someone's chasing you or you're chasing something, and it, it really is – doesn't matter what's going on it hurts the same like a five flat 1500 or a 430 it, it hurts just the same so it really is like all right you're just gonna have to do it now like there isn't any like best scenarios where it's easier you know um but then the worst uh, like the one i really didn't like the most that was the most frustrating was the high jump where like my the biomechanics and my explosiveness and my skill and everything else just didn't really translate like i can i have a 42 and a half inch vertical leap off two feet standing there, jumping up, could run and touch the top of the backboard, and I could barely high jump, like, six, eight, six, nine consistently. Like, barely. Like, I could jump six, seven consistently, which is, like, two meters, but just could not, like, break through. It was just this weird, frustrating – Still, I'm getting frustrated even talking about it to you right now. <laughs> um, and it just was the, the one event that I just never felt like I unlocked – let me, let me ask you this, because I'm sure there's so many different ways to train for it. How did you train specifically for the decathlon? I mean, every single day, I mean, would you hit the five events, hit five events and just rotate, or is it, would you focus on one thing per day sometimes? I, I was really lucky that my, my first coach, he had a great coach in, in college. He was a college decathlete at LSU, and he was coached by Dan Paff, who's just a legend in sports science, physiology, and coaching in general, but he was a really good decathlon coach. Um, and we basically played the long game, you know, I was learning all the events except pole vault and it wasn't like, okay, crash course in this crash course in this. It was, Hey, let's train commonalities. Let's train. Here's how we're going to do it. Every week is going to look the same. And we're playing the game where Trey's going to be great at 24, 25, 26, not 19, 20 mm -hmm. and, and have these like peaks and valleys and ups and downs. And every event got the same amount of attention for, going on like 10 years before we kind of switched up how we trained as I got older and got that, you know, kind of old man strength and knew where the low hanging fruit was. That's uh, it just overwhelming. It would feel like your hair's on fire. The amount of things you've got to, I mean, do you, do you feel like you became a, I mean, you're competing at the top level. Did you consider yourself an expert in all the events? By the, by the end, Yes, yes. I, I could have stepped in and replaced anybody's coach. It was like, you're over in Europe and someone's like, my coach isn't here. Will you catch this or watch this? I'm like, yeah, totally. Like I, you, I could have stepped in for anything except for like, like a middle distance runner. I wasn't going to program workouts for them or do anything like that. But it ended up being the case where not by design, but over time you do it. I did it for so long. You develop first, you know, a little bit of physical ability. Then you learn some competency and then you learn the underpinnings of why you've been doing the things that you've been doing. And then you learn the, like, kind of like the, the theory behind that human performance and what, how to, how to peak and periodize and how to create this kind of strength and speed and power velocity and where all those fall on the spectrum and then how to time everything up physiologically where aerobic power and anaerobic power can be timed up, um, max velocity, absolute strength and all that stuff. And that's how we kind of set up our training so that all those things would intersect on the days of a, of a decathlon. So you start out at Mississippi State, they drop the program, go to UT, yep. but you finish on the outdoor championships, you know, NCAA champion in 2005. Mm -hmm. And then in 2006, you set the record for the NCAA. Yeah. 
which yeah, but and it was awesome at the time, but now I think I'm like fifth on the list. Like the way kid, the the guys that have been coming through lately are just insane. But yeah, it was a instant success. Like really, it was the translation was really really good. I got along with my teammates. My coach mm-hmm. was awesome, and it just was the right decision for me, right environment, and it was kind of I was big fish little pond, and then moved into the biggest pond, and then you're running around. There's you know T.J. Ford. There's Vince Young, there's Kevin Durant, there's like Houston Street, Kat Osterman, Sonia Richard Ross. You're just like, whoa, this is awesome. Like, and you're just surrounded by this success and excellence. And then the way that everybody went about their, their day and their business and the athletic department in general was just this like rising tide that it just gave me a little bit more belief, you know, like being in that environment. And I'm sure there's an element of, as you said earlier, either compete or lose your scholarship, you're gone. I mean, a little bit, but it, it, I always felt like it was a job. Like the day, I mean, even my little book scholarship, I felt like it at Mississippi State, it felt like it was a job. Like, and I had always worked, I worked from age of 14 till like right now, you know, always held down some kind of, of I'm going to do this for create value somewhere and do this work. And so for me, it was really just fulfilling that commitment and earning my, my spot and earning the, the money that I was getting. And I knew, I never felt pressure. I just knew if I always showed up every day and did that work, it tracks a beautiful sport like that. If you actually do show up and do the work, you do get better. That's how our bodies work. The stress, there's no like, you know, qualitative version where you get style points and you're just, oh, that judge just didn't like me. No, no, no. We're going to know what you did. We're going to know how you trained because there's a number there, centimeters, seconds, whatever. We're going to know. And so I always loved that about it. There was no judge or referee that could take anything away. And I was ultimately responsible for my own success. You know, like if I didn't show up, I wasn't going to get better. At that level, I'm interested in this. I mean, you said it's a job. And I have no doubt. And I actually hear that as a positive thing where, where some people see it as a negative thing. Was there ever an off season? And two, I mean, your college experience is a lot different than the 99.9% repeating. Did you enjoy your college years in retrospect? Oh, loved them. Loved them. It was a different era too. There's no NIL. There's none of that stuff. Yeah. It was like kind of the transition from the good old boys to like the – there's no social media. There's actually Facebook was had just started and it was only for universities and like I think Texas was like the fifth or sixth or tenth or something like that. So it was Facebook was still about like chat rooms and stuff, you know. But I I loved it. I absolutely loved it. It was you were doing it with like minded people, you were, you know, suffering together, you were sacrificing for the good of a team, you were part of something that was kind of bigger than yourself in the university and it was um, and doing it in a, in a town like Austin was just looking back. You, I mean, we all took it for granted. It was awesome in the early two thousands. It was awesome. It was like heyday. It was before all the tall buildings, you know. Um, and I, th- I think I had a similar experience to everybody else that was doing it because, or at least at, on my team, we all loved the sport. And we all just loved each other enough that we would go to the well and do whatever we needed to do for the good of the team. And mm-hmm. there was that camaraderie, which is different than being a professional athlete when there's, you know, hey, do whatever you want, man. We don't care. You don't have to show up today, you know. But that, that the college experience was, it was awesome. Ever an off season? 
or when the, 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 the indoor and outdoor season ended, I mean, you're going right back into some sort of training. Yeah, I mean, in college, you run all the way through, like, mid-June, and then off-season was see you, next, see you next fall. When, when you show up for class, we'll start training again. And then professionally, the season shifts a little bit. So competed a lot less indoors than I did in college, but the season would run into August and early September. So October 1 was typical start date, like, hey, let's get things moving again. But the way we program all of October, I mean, there's no weights. There's no real running and jumping on a track. It's all just general prep, like easy GPP stuff where you're getting your body ready to work. Mm-hmm. And by the time mid-November runs around, rolls around, now it's like, all right, here we go. That's, you're putting in hours. We're, we're clicking into like the 35, 40 hours a week, uh, a.m., p.m., you know, four days a week, and then just one session on the other two days. But six days a week of training, uh, one day of complete, you know, active recovery rest and that kind of thing. I'm, I'm totally off my, my Olympic years, but 2005, 2006, you graduate in 2006. What, what's the closest Olympics? 2008. 2008. Yep. 08. And you, you didn't make the, did you make the Olympics on that? I, I did. I ended up making the, the Olympics. So I had gone to the Olympic trials in 04 and it was like my fourth or fifth decathlon ever. And was just like, oh shoot, you can be pro with this. This is cool. Like I was totally naive, like bumpkin from Mississippi state. And that's when I, it kind of clicked for me. Like I need, and my coach leaving and they cut the program. I was like, I, I want to take this farther. That's the spot for me. I did that, ran into a couple injuries in 07, but signed my first pro contract, then started running for Nike in 07. Um, but didn't compete in a single decathlon that year, just from wrist surgery and tore like the adductors off my pubic bone. And that'll do it. That happens. Uh, that'll cause you to hang it up. So mm. hung out that, that year. Um, and really struggled until the following March, like March of 2008. I'd done a lot of general prep work. I was strong. I was kind of fit, but I hadn't sprinted and wasn't able to do a lot. And then something in like March, April just kind of clicked. I started seeing a different physio and it just started unlocking, started feeling better. And then, um, made my first Olympic team. And it was just this, like life was still pretty easy at that point. Like wake up, go to bed, train in the middle a little bit, stress, rest, and you're going to get better. There wasn't any like you know, mentally it was hard just because I, I was hurt and I wasn't able to like really be myself, but it just, I was still young enough that the improvements were easy, but that way. When you were injured for a year, how, I mean, mentally, how was that? Cause I, what I see the common thread amongst high performers and represent the, the, the very high percentage of those high performers when they are down, that is when like mentally, like you see people spiral. Yeah. I, I mean, I was young enough. I didn't, and I never really was caught up. Like my identity is this, I'm this guy, I'm mm-hmm. the you know national champion or record holder. It was just, I learned a lot through it because I would try to do too much too soon, try to come back too quick. And, and it just kicked the can down the road for another few weeks and then did it again, kick the can down the road another few weeks. And so I learned a lot from that experience of just saying, Hey, uh, be still, take care of this stuff everything's going to be okay. And it really was a lack of confidence and that anxiety of being like, I'm not going to be ready. I'm not going to be ready. I got to put in the work. I'm not going to be ready. Instead of saying everything will work out. If I do everything smart and do it like I'm supposed to do and do the work, I'll have no regrets. Maybe I make the team. Maybe I don't, maybe I'm done with the sport or maybe I'm not, but at least I'll be able to live with myself and have no regrets. So that was that like that kind of forms throughout the, 
just the process of being an elite track and field athlete because there is no like it's it's the top half a percent of half a percent of half it's this it's it the difference it's the jerry seinfeld thing you know like national hero no one's ever heard of you and it literally is we're talking inches of the difference in in what like going to bed early might mean or something like that and so i think as a track and field athlete you're just hypersensitive and very aware and and probably read into a lot of stuff a little too much so that what's that's what makes it kind of hard to rest in terms of the and i've heard this i mean help Steve Prefontaine, I know, was vocal about this, is how much Olympic athletes are supported. I know you had the pro contract with Nike. I mean, you're still living slightly above the poverty line, I'm assuming, or is that is that, that, that comment drastic, a little well, dramatic in itself? I, I think the vast majority of track and field athletes, I think, sit right there. Yeah. I think they do it. They get enough to to continue training and maybe not have to have a full-time job or a part. maybe it's a mm-hmm. half-part-time job, but um, – the decathlon is one of those events that gets to be on TV during the Olympics quite a bit. And the United States has a famed tradition. Like, we're very successful. Dan and Dave, they made, I think they each made, like, it's either 11 or $19 million for that Reebok campaign back in 92. Like, inflation adjusted, that's a crap ton of money. Um, no one's making that anymore. But I was still in what you would call a premier event. You know, mm-hmm. it's the 100, mm-hmm. the 200, or the 100, the 400, and, like, the the decathlon and I think that's kind of it. A uh, 1500. Sorry, the men's 1500. Those are kind of I remember seeing a, like a marketing I remember seeing like a marketing sheet and it was like tier 1 and I was like, "Oh shoot, I'm in tier 1. Cool." And I had no idea. So my first contract, had I made the World Championship in 07, I would have made a, a a really good salary. Like way above poverty, like really good salary. But I didn't, so I was kind of right there. I remember I I could save that whole year, because I, I invested in myself, got new physios and stuff. I think I saved like $3,000 that year, like stored it away and was really proud of myself. And then the next year kind of did the same thing and it stored it away and um, ended up making the Olympic team. So a lot of bonuses involved. But by the end, I was, I, I think I'm, I'm on record of saying they, they paid me way too much. <laughs> like I was. Other athletes are like, hey, shut up. Shut up. Yeah. Yeah. They had a lot between myself and then my teammate, Ashton Eaton, who came out of school, then set the world record, Olympic gold. Between the two of us, we were probably chewing up a lot of budget, <laughs> like a lot of budget. Um, and so I was just really blessed. I was really fortunate to, like, have a run of success like I did, have a good agent who had set up a good contract. Um, super, yeah, super high base salary, like well above most of the, you know, other professional leagues, like league minimums, you know. Like it was, to me, just silly money. Yeah, I, the the women's soccer team didn't feel that way. Yeah, it's a joke. Too soon. No. Too soon. <laughs> All right. Um, we just got canceled. Did they awesome. win? Did they win their case? <laughs> I haven't been following it. I, I think they won the case. That's an interesting. So I understand their perspective, but I also, you know, you run a business now, mm-hmm. correct? It's it's dollars and cents. Yeah. If I have a salesperson that pulls in $10 million. He is going to be paid $1 million in commissions. If I have somebody who pulls in $5 million, they're going to make 500000 Yeah. And it, I, I understand why she's saying what she's saying, but at the end of the day, I mean, men's soccer just brings in uh, more views, yeah. more audience. TV rights are worth more. Oh. There's just, it's, a, it's 
kind of they're not playing the same game in terms of the back end there, and it's hard. Like the, I don't think there is a right answer, and there's not a fair answer, and there's not any of that. It's just those. It's never going to be copacetic. It's just hard. Yeah. So the definition of of fair has you know as you evolve and you, you mature, like yeah. in, in, uh, do you have kids yet? Three children. Three children. No kidding. What ages? Yeah, six, four, two. Six, four, two. You guys are done. Oh yeah. Okay. It's me- well, they, they technically can't say a hundred percent, but medically improbable that. I can produce another <laughs> another child. Don't get me started there. We're we're trying right now. Um, I'm an old dog. She's a little bit younger. So you know when you teach your kids the concept of fair, I, I think I'm going to take a, a different approach yeah. from 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 my parents, or maybe they did teach this, and I just did. You know, I was not a, a I was an unruly kid. Went went in one ear and out the other. Is you can put all the work in, and you still don't win. In, in the first line, a child usually says, this is unfair. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's that's hardwired in us as humans. It, I, I really think fairness is a big, deep, like it's why we've done what we've been able to do in terms of civilization, in culture, and all that stuff. Like, have you seen the, um, the, the two monkeys that are given grapes in captivity? I, I, I think I have seen this. And they each get one, everybody's happy. They each get one, everybody's happy. They each get one, everybody's happy. Then one of them gets his one, and the other one gets two. And the one that gets one just literally goes, sorry, my French, ape shit, Like, goes crazy, and I don't think he doesn't even eat his one. He's so pissed off because it's not fair. And I think it's, I don't know what the study was trying to prove, but to me it was like, yeah, I think that's, and then now having kids, it's very much, fairness is a big part of it. But I think... Fairness get, oftentimes, I think, gets confused with, like, equitable or equality or and, and those kind of terms where what's equitable might not be fair on paper, but it actually is, you know? So I have a good buddy, uh, actually, Will knows him, and uh, his daughter came to him, and she was, she was quite upset because she had gotten an A in this class, and her friend had gotten a C. And he was trying to reinforce a, a lesson he saw an opportunity here. Um, and he asked her a series of questions. Well, did she work as hard as you? No. Did she put the time in? No. Did she do this? No. And she said, then her, her, her grade is, is fair for, for the effort she put in. And she said, well, it didn't soothe the daughter whatsoever. And, uh, he said, okay, well, how about this? How about I talk to the teacher? We're going to move your A to a B so that your friend can move up to a B as well. And the daughter said, well, what, what? Well, no, no, I don't want to do that. And um, he, he did say something. Uh, <laughs> he's from San Antonio. He said, welcome to the Republican Party. Oh, uh, and, yeah, But it, it's, it's an interesting, we're in an interesting time in society right now where the diversity, equity, inclusion is those, those definitions are not necessarily aligning based off whose perception or, or experiences yep. uh, they have. And uh, it, it'll be interesting to see where this, this settles out, but um, I mean, I can't tell you in life how many times I put the work in and it just doesn't work out in my way. I mean, I've had textbook failures for companies and I've only been out of the military for five years, but, uh, textbook failures from which I've learned the most. And, um, yeah, yeah it was it's an, it's an important part of life. I mean, you learn more from failure than success to, like every single time. That's not even, there's no argument there. Like you, you're lucky. Like if you're good, you're, you're kind of lucky. And the and success is really just staying in the game long enough to get lucky. Be good. Be work so hard. There was a, there was actually a discus thrower, 
at a, a female discus thrower at the world championships had no business like be there. Fantastic discus thrower had to set a personal best on her final throw just to make this team at the U.S. Championships. Like, and it was incredible. She threw a PR, made the team. You're like, great. Hope she gets there and maybe she, you know, gets lucky and makes the final at the World Championships. She won the final. She won. She's a world champion. She set a, uh, like a four-meter PR on Which her. Which is unheard of, probably at that level, because you're, you're going inches. absolutely not heard of. But then I had time to reflect on it. We celebrated. It was awesome. It, total drama. She unseated the woman who should have, who probably should have won, American record holder gal. And um, I had time to reflect on it. I was like, you know what? It's not like that wasn't crazy. That was she busted her ass for the last ten years just to give herself the chance to step in the ring and get get quote unquote lucky. But she earned that chance to be able to do that because. The failure, the failure, the failure, the failure, and staying in the game long enough to get lucky, you know? And I think those are the the successful people, are the ones who just continue on, that, that trudge through, that learn from mistakes, that continue to keep going. And that was, shoot, it's all around us now. Like, Instagram's nothing but, like, a bunch of promotional, like, self-help stuff. But, like, jo- Seth Rogen, like, the actor who's like, <laughs> like that guy, gave a really kind of powerful little snippet, and he's like, I just didn't quit. Like I've got plenty of friends that tried this and they would quit after a they quit after a couple of years. I I failed for 2 years and I just I didn't quit. And the most successful people in my business just never quit. Like some of them got lucky, but you can see what happens yeah. because they quit when it's not happening for them, but the, the ones that stick around are the ones that don't quit. I think that's life. That's just yeah. that's the rule of life is just don't quit, keep on going because other people will stop. Uh, there's a yeah. difference between quitting and giving up. Um yeah. but all right, that was a good podcast. That was yeah, good. One. That was good. <laughs> okay, lessons. Um, so, it, the first time you walked through, uh, two thousand eight was was that Rio? Uh, Beijing. Beijing. Mm-hmm. How was that walking through the the tunnel for the opening ceremonies? Was it almost like a okay, I've I've made it. Yeah, it was cool. Like it it was that thing I didn't know it what like I it wasn't a dream of mine to go to the Olympics, but it was a mission and a goal of mine. Um, and it was that box that I got to check and it was grand and huge. And that was my first time out of the country. So I'm like, yeah. So I'm like, whoa, like, this is a big deal. Like that Kobe Bryant's right there. Like I got to meet the president. I got to like, it was wild. Like, and it was kind of too big, really. Like it took me over. I was like, so hyper focused on winning a medal that I didn't really enjoy any of it, and I was like looking for reasons to like, oh well, I I, I can't have my normal dinner, so I'm not going to recover as good, or like, oh man, the, the, I can't even drink the water out of the fountain, so I'm not drinking as much water as I normally would, and it was just a lot of like not looking for negatives, but just not enjoying the fact that I'm at the doggone Olympics, and just got in the middle of the competition, and it was my first time an Olympic schedule. For a decathlon's way different than like a you know going and getting a qualifying score or even like the U.S. Championships. It's just drawn out. So instead of it being like, all right, you guys just threw the shot, let's go high jump. It's like you're gonna do the hundred, the long jump, and the shot put in the morning session. Then you're gonna have four or five hours before you come back up, maybe six sometimes for the high jump in the four hundreds. Now you've got two sessions, a big break in the middle, and then you run the four hundred at nine thirty. So maybe you're maybe or ten some on some meets, and you're getting back to the hotel at like midnight, twelve thirty, trying to get some sleep. But then you have to get up at five because you're running the hurdles at eight thirty or nine in the morning. 
And it's the same thing, morning session, evening session. So you've got this long, drawn-out, exhaustive thing. And I just wasn't ready for or mentally did, prepared for Did you that. know that going in? No. no. I mean, I saw it on paper. And I was like, okay, we'll be all right. Yeah. Instead of like, all right, how do you think that's going to feel? How are we going to cope with this in between events? How are we going to do this during the rest periods? How are we going to do this? And no one on my team had done it either. So not that we were blind, but we were just naive. And the moment was so big that it kind of overtook, like, my body. Like, it just... I could feel it in my body. And I was, again, probably looking for a reason for it not to go well at that point. But I was in metal contention. I wasn't having a bad meet. wasn't having a great meet, but it was, I was right there. I mean, I'll go to my grave saying if I clear a bar in the pole vault, I'm, I'm winning a medal. Um, and that was kind of it. It just I kind of woke up out of this weird dream, and I had missed three times in the pole vault, and that was it. That was the end of my Olympic experience but left unfulfilled in saying, I got one more go. Yeah. I mean, I, someone was also paying me to go one more yeah. time. But it's the, also uh, a good thing. But not, I, that, that, not that that was your motivator, I'm sure. It made it easier. But, no, my, and my, my coaches sat me down um, right when we got back to Austin and just said, hey, do you really want to do this? Like, is this something, like, put, really put me to it and challenged me to go leave, leave the, the sport for a month, you know, go away for a month and really come back. Or don't, but you need to figure out yourself why you're here, what you're doing this for. Because, like, without saying it, that the whole summer was a waste of time. You know, they played you psychologically. They played you. I bet he left the room. They're like, "Watch, he'll be back in a month." Oh yeah, motivated. Where we need his headspace to be. Exactly. We'll throw that picture up uh, that I sent you, dude. Uh, I'm assuming this is the 2012 again, which was London, right? Did I get that right? the one on the right, Trey Hardy, dude. That one, that was one year after. Um, Beijing? Yeah, like one year after, 2009 in Berlin. How, I mean, how much weight training were you doing? Like a little bit. Like I, I you lift a little differently. So that was, that was maybe 2011 in Gotsis, maybe. In terms of but physique, you, were, 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 do you think you were by far ahead of the other guys? Well, I... I have really thin skin, so the veins are not from anything other. Like I, have, you can see my veins right now. Like I've just got really thin, like yeah. thin skin. So, I I did lift, I'd say often, but it wasn't like there's no like never lifted for hypertrophy, never lifted for anything other than producing power. So most of your workouts were on the track. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. And there's certain times of the year where maybe like. Maybe it's 60-40 track to weight room, and that's yeah. in the off-season. Yes. And we're doing more, like, building a, a nice base of work capacity. But I've never – I don't remember ever doing anything over five reps, ever. But was it on the off-season where you, you felt you, you gained that second or that inch or that centimeter? Oh, no. Off-season was nothing. I wasn't touching a weight, touching the track, nothing. Like, I got as far away from it as I could. No, and do you think – was that the reset for you, just to, like, completely decompress, mm-hmm. get your mind right? Because it is – it's a full-time job. And and I think the difference for me, what gave me longevity was the little stuff. You know, I started to take more seriously my – everyone calls it a warm-up, but I just called it, like, movement preparation or prehabilitation. I, I took that so, so seriously because I knew – it was building more robust joints and ligaments for me to be able to do more work and work in, work out. Like that, w- that's what was going to make me better. And I was blessed. Like I'm blessed with levers. I'm tall. 
and I and some people are wired, some people aren't. And I was I'm tall and wired, and so all I had to do was be patient and yeah, get in the weight room a little bit. Dude, I mean six. The Jets, the New York Jets, yeah, made you an offer to come try out. Yeah, they're like, hey, it was after yeah after Beijing, and my sports psychologist was was ended up being their sports psychologist, and so he's like, hey, we got Trey, you you should come out here. I'm like, uh, I don't know why. And he's like, they want you to be on the practice squad. Do you think you'd want to do that? And I'm like, man, I to sh- compete to be on the team, right? Yeah, I was like, man, I sh- I just kind of went full send on this decathlon thing, and I'm gonna hurt myself out there, like I'm gonna get hurt. Now, that's in the, like, the box of list of regrets in my life. Like, I should have at least taken in the next couple of steps and seen what it was all about because I didn't – I'm in a pool with a bunch of the world's greatest athletes, you know? Like, I'm only around my peers who are fast – like, 100-meter runners are faster than me. Long jumpers jump farther. Shot putters throw farther. Mm-hmm. I'm not the best at anything, but now on the other side of life in, my, in the career that I'm in now, coaching – NFL pro bowlers and guys that can, that, that can do it. I was like, Oh yeah, I checked all those boxes. I should have tried that. It will attest to your athleticism that they recognize that. But what, what position were they, they exactly going to, uh, Oh, tackling dummy. Like, <laughs> they, they had to have receiver. a yeah. be, be receiver. Receiver. Yeah. yeah. Tight I was, end. I was, no, I was six, five. I was at my heaviest when we were, when I was like pushing like winter weight where we're like, not worried about being lean. I was like 216. So I'm like 6'5, 216. And like lean, I'm like at the end of a season, I'm like 208. So your 100 was pretty damn fast. What was your 100? Uh, uh, 1026. So not, not slow, but not the, not the fastest. But I'm, I, again, we trained, we trained for the 100, like acceleration development every 14 days. Yeah. And then we did some form of like max velocity stuff every other 14 days. So yeah, I mean, did you ever throw weight on? And do 100 to see how much it affected your uh, personal uh, Oh, no, not yeah. really. And you never run, like, a 100-meter dash in training. But, like, I could line it up with almost anybody. And at 30 meters, I'm within an arm's length, Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's amazing, dude. Yeah, this fall or this spring, I did a, a couple of warm-ups. And we, we get guys ready for the NFL Combine. And they're talking shit. And just like, yeah, man, you're slow, man. Everything you do looks slow. I'm like, all right. Let's see how you do. And our guys are running their first 40s of the year after football season. They ran like 4'7", four, 4'8". Four, and I was like, I could beat that right now. And they're like, no, you couldn't. And they've seen – I'm not training. I've just been doing like their warm-ups and like just trying to loosen up and feel good. I'm like, all right, I'll do it right now. We got the, the lasers were all set up. We did it. I went 468, like my first time in tennis shoes on turf, like shutting it down because I was about to hurt myself. And I was like, there you go. How's that? And they're like, we're slow. Hey, coach. Yeah, you gotcha. Yeah. Let's get let's get back to working out. Yeah. So, uh, silver, you know, silver in the uh, the 2012 Olympics. Yep. Uh, eventually, you start to suffer some injuries, and now you, again, you said you're training pro athletes, training civilians. What made you take that leap from track to I want this to be my next profession, my next passion? Well, I I didn't. Uh, that was a, a, just a another life lesson of mine. I, I finished, I retired, uh, just had a string of like mishaps and injuries and stuff that was kind of beyond my control. Like I'd mentioned earlier, I sleep easy. I did everything right. I worked my butt off. Everything I did was the intentions were good. I, I never got hurt or injured for something that was like not 
right. You know, fluke freak things, stuff that was just beyond my control. So I sleep easy. I did everything I could have done. So I have no regrets. And when I, when I finished though, I just wanted to see what else was out there in the world. I didn't really know what I was going to do. It just felt like if I set something up and was trying to angle myself for post training or, or post, you know, career, it kind of felt like I was cheating on the sport, you know, like it's prefontaine to give anything less than your best is to sacrifice the gift kind of thing. So yeah, prefontaine was we, we probably a uh, few, few screws uh, loose there. Yeah. I used to, I, you know, one thing when pre prefontaine is uh, I used to go to track camp at Oregon. During oh, really? The summers. No way. Breaking. We, we would train hard during the week and then it was just parties, <laughs> parties afterwards. Nothing but the cross country and the track girls. It was, uh, yeah. Because it was right around the, at the time that they would have nationals during okay. the summer there. It was, it was, it was a good time. Yeah. Eugene's a fun town. I'll be, I'll be back there in a couple of weeks for the end of the year. Uh, Prefontaine classic. Yes. Yeah. Close out the track season. And so I just, I, I'd stored all the money. I'd bought a bunch of real estate. I didn't need a job. I didn't need to do anything. We were starting a family. I wanted to be a very present dad. I didn't want to just jump at the next thing. And I didn't want to make a decision because I had to. Um, and then ended up going and get my master's. I got, I got my MBA right after at a really competitive program. And now I've got all these new tools. Now I've got like some, a network, I've got things I could go do. And I just started to try on different hats and none of them felt right. And I couldn't put my finger on why, but I just didn't want to get back into track. I just, I was like, I've done that. I've done that. What else is out here? The whole world is out here. There's a bunch of unsexy, great businesses that I could be good at. What, what do I need to do? And just tried them all on. And it wasn't literally until close to a year ago, about 11 months ago, we're talking six years after retirement, that I was riding up in an elevator with the, the owner of a gym here in town. And we just got to talking. It was a great conversation. He's like, why don't you hey, come to the gym? I'm like, okay. We're talking. He's like, hey, you should meet this guy. His name's Mo Wells. I was like, okay, I'll yes. come back in a couple of weeks. I met Mo. And within two minutes of talking to Mo, I'm like, oh, this is going to be fun. Please, can I come work for you? And ever since then, it really hasn't felt like work, really hasn't done anything Mm -hmm. except kind of fill my cup. You know, my drive home at the end of the day, I'm excited. Like I'm, I'm full. I'm like, it feels like I'm on purpose and that's what training and stuff was for me. I knew I was supposed to be a athlete. I was supposed to be here doing what I was doing. And I know what that feels like. It's kind of like, I had a plug and the outlet was track and it was this perfect fit, this very unique puzzle piece that fit right in there. And it just felt complete, whole and purposeful. And then I just didn't have that for five and a half, six years. And it just was frustrating and lonely. And at, 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 during times just, I felt ashamed for feeling those things. And now I don't, I don't feel any of that anymore. Like I feel like I'm back doing things that fill my cup and that I like, I'm, I like where this is going. It feels very familiar to me how I felt starting my career. For a lot of the uh, the SEALs that contact me and they're like, hey, I'm going to go into private equity. I'm like, hey, just, just slow, <laughs> slow your roll. Slow your roll. And what I've come to realize is that um, you retired early. We usually retire around 40, between 40 and 50. Is It's more of a process of elimination of yeah. trying this. Like, yeah, I don't like that. Trying this. Too hot, too cold. That's just right, and it takes time for some people. Yeah, and I think it, that's the best advice you can give, too, is like, hey, you're not going to find it. You're just, at, uh, sorry, not going to find it, but what Out you can game. do yeah. 
is figure out what you don't want to do and then be thankful that you're figuring it out now and not when you're 60 or what, you know, like that's the, that was really good advice for me. So yeah, try it on a lot of hats. And find out what fits. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm having fun right now. It still is a ton of fucking work. We work our asses off. And these guys hate me. I'm just like, I need a video done by uh, tomorrow. Yeah. Well, I've got a party. Skipping the party. Yeah. Get it done. Thank me for uh, having a job. So you you work at the collective. Yes. That was the old, trying to remember what was it? Where we are collective north, the old CG arena. Yeah. The old Camp Gladiator. Yep. Beautiful facility. Yeah. Allie and Jeff did a great job like building that out. And then now all we did was come in and paint it all black. Is there a turf field? Yes. Right next to it? And you guys own that? Piece yep. of real estate. We own well. that real estate, and that's that's all getting redone. That'll be all artificial turf with our branding and logos and all that stuff, ready for the next uh, like pre-draft combine off season. Oh, bro, I got to come check it out. Yeah, I mean, amazing. anyone can join, right? Yeah, anybody can join, and it is as good of a high. It's a high performance facility. It's not a gym. It, it's a high performance like social club. Like it's never crowded. It's it, by design, you know. Like, and we have all the toys, all the tech, all the gadgets, all the coaches. It's, it is fantastic. And you rub it and you get to like rub shoulders with pro bowler, pro bowler, NBA all-star, like tech CEO. Oh, okay. Like it really is very unique. That's, that's awesome. I I, I can tell the passion is, uh, as you're talking about it. And I know the the whole reason you're here is, uh, you've got a row coming up. Oh yeah. Um, a little paddle. How many miles? Uh, it's only 21. Only 21. Only 21. Have you been uh, preparing for that though? I, I prepared a little bit, more than in years past. So this year, the uh, Flatwater Foundation, Foundation actually took out, we had 13 people go to British Columbia, like North Vancouver Island and the Broughton Archipelago, and we went 75 kilometers in like 72 hours. Just with, so with camping on an island? Camping on your island, whatever you, whatever you can pack on your board, that's what you had. Next time, call me. Oh. I like Men's Journal will follow you guys and document oh, this whole thing. Yeah. I, that's, I had a, a buddy do that on the uh, Lake Michigan. Okay. Between some, some Ooh, islands. That can be choppy. Yeah. That can know. be pretty choppy. A lot, a lot of ships have been lost in uh, Lake Michigan. Yeah. So we did, I did that. That was coolest experience of my life. It what was time of the so year? fun. It, this was in June. So it was, was beautiful. Yeah. It was like the high of 60 every day. The water's 48 degrees. We got lucky with the weather. It like sprinkled on us like one time, but like just I, one of the most beautiful places in all of, of the world. Like the most bio bio dense place, so everywhere you look, there's there's something alive that can either eat you or is scared of you, kind of thing. So it's like the killer whale, the grizzly bear, and bald eagle capital of North America. So it's just it was fantastic. Vancouver, the San Francisco of the North. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I'm from San Francisco, so no, no, that's awesome. I, I love the 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 very you know singular focus of this organization. Can you explain to the listeners? Yeah. So. I, just the backstory. So Mark Garza founded Flatwater in 2010, and they did it just on a stunt after his experience with his, his own family. Uh, his father was diagnosed with uh, bone cancer, prostate cancer, and, and had just been going through all the, the shit that you go through with a cancer diagnosis. And the family was just being, like, there was friction. It, it was splintering. And everybody kind of does that in silence. And... and Mark had gone to see therapists and just talk through, a, talk to a professional about what's going on and, and try to get some tools to help cope with what's going on and figure out a way to get through this himself. And after a couple of sessions, realizes, oh my God, this is so expensive. Mm-hmm. And then digging a little deeper, you find out insurance didn't cover any of that. 
And then you find out how many people are dealing with this on a daily basis and the millions of people that are going through this cancer diagnosis. And then you think about, okay, well, it's them plus their family. It's them plus their spouses. It's them plus their kids. It's them plus their, their parents. It's them plus everybody around them. And so as a stunt, just a marketing stunt, he and a few buddies went out on Lake Austin, and it's a 21-mile lake from dam to dam, from Mansfield Dam to Hula Hut, um, down near Redbud Island, and they just paddled it. And they had a friend at, I think, the local Fox affiliate, and they, they recorded a little bit of thing, threw it up on the evening news, and just, hey, just raising awareness for, you know, mental health and um, how important it is, you know, coping with cancer and everybody needs to take care of themselves. And then a couple weeks later he gets a call and there's like $13,000 that had been sent in. And he's like, what am I going to do with this? And then a month later he talked to one of the, his friends from college who just happened to be the CEO and founder with Lance Armstrong of Livestrong, Doug Ullman. He's like, Hey Doug, I think I want to do this. And so Doug helped set, helped him like organize, helped him figure out how to set up this event. He did the first ever damn that cancer um, that year. And it started to just, it was this passion and this, this mission and this thing that he felt so strongly about created the 501 C three created the event. Um, and then my wife got there, um, a year later, year and a half later and interned at Livestrong before it all, before the whole Lance Oprah thing. And one of the events she helped out on was damn that cancer. And, DTC has since grown. Uh, I think they raised $30,000 the first year, and the goal this year is to raise $1.3 million um, after a couple of back-to-back years at $1.2. And 100% of all the money that's, that's raised by the foundation goes to the mission, and that is covering the costs of mental health therapy and counseling for families associated so say with that the diagnosis. Again, how much? 100%? 100%. Every, every dollar that's donated, so like right now I'm, I'm raising money to, to paddle, and every single dollar that, that hits that account goes to a counselor to reimburse them for talking to a family that's going through the shit, that is just in the middle of existential and very real crises, and keeping families together, helping kids cope with what's going on, keeping spouses focused on what's important, um, all of that. Everything that, that Flatwater does is underwritten by corporate sponsors, and other means so that I think one of the big problems that not only my wife and Mark saw from major organizations is that people don't really know where the money's going. Yes. It's a big, it's a tiny drop in a mm. big old bucket. Whereas here it, in, it's central Texans raising money for central Texans to give to central Texans. And they work with tons of great partners like Texas oncology. They did work with live strong. It just is a um, incredibly I don't want to say close network, but it, everybody's way more connected than they think they are. Everyone is probably one degree away from someone that's either literally been in Flatwater Care or donated or raised money for Flatwater. And it, it's sad that it's so necessary, but it is so important and so impactful, and it is often the first thing that kind of people don't think about. You, you, you are a father. The, the way I can sort of conceptualize this for me is like I would I would spiral to watch one of my kids suffer from cancer knowing I can't do a thing and I think it's that helplessness that would I would I, there's just there's no way to cope with that especially when you've been in control of almost 
a majority of the outcomes in your life. That is, that's my biggest fear is, is when you mess with my family or my kids and I, I've, I'm powerless to do anything. That's, yeah, that, that chokes me up just thinking about it, man. Yeah. And I mean, every, I think thematically that's a big part of like our own mortality. And then we talk about fairness, how un freaking fair it is to, to have it happen to you, the people you care about, your neighbors, your friends, and it, it gives you the ultimate perspective. And that's, that's a beautiful thing that Flatwater's given me and my family is just the perspective on a daily basis of how blessed and fortunate we are and how fortunate we have been and helps us honestly and celebrate the time that we did get with the loved ones that we have lost. And, and, um, it is a lesson that we get to pass down to our kids and it is something that's really important to us. And it truly is like from top to bottom. I don't, it, it's grown into something that the founder Mark had no idea it would grow into. And right now it's just full, you know, foot down, full gas. How, how much money can we raise? How many lives can we impact? What, what, what else can we do to spread this message and to get more people involved? And, and then, then the next step is to move this into different markets because it doesn't exist everywhere. And so now that just the logistics and the, the, the gymnastics of recreating what the flatwater culture is in Austin in other parts of the country. Well, that's, that's noble work. And as I was looking at the team, I, I went right past your, your wife until he said something. So I, I see that. So she's the, uh, the VP of impact mm-hmm. and events. Yep. Um, well, on behalf of men's journal, the everyday warrior, uh, we'd like to donate a thousand towards the cause. We'll, we'll do it right now. Um, which oh, when man. I say the men's journal, everyday warrior, that's, that's me, I'm a vet. So I'll give what I can. Dude. Um, Hey, thank you. And, uh, wow. you know, that's good work, but more importantly, where can people go to sign up for this event? The, the and we'll drop all because we're going to do an editorial on you with, to, to pair flatwaterfoundation.org, but I'm not seeing where to sign up for the event. Uh, the event, this is what makes it kind of unique and special. Mm-hmm. The LCRA, the Lower Colorado River Authority, yes. will only allow and permit the foundation 200 spots on the water. So while the event has grown immeasurably in, in monies raised. The number of people on the water has stayed the same. So the first year you only had to raise a thousand dollars to paddle. Mm-hmm. Then it, a couple of years later, clicked up to 1500, then 2000, 2500. Now we're at 3000. And we think next year it'll, it'll have to be more because yeah, so you guys are, you, you're full at 200. Yep. And each of them had to raise one, uh, $1,000 to get in 3000, 3000. Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah. Holy cow, that's yeah, amazing. I'm, I'm, I'm still like 2000 short. Like and to do the the big paddle in Vancouver, you had to raise $10,000. And Dude, I done. Let me know, just give it, me 6 months in advance. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. Uh, and so to to be a paddler on the water, there's an application process because it, the event the is old. Well, the event is now over 10 years old. It's 13 years old now and it th- we have paddlers that paddled way back in the day. They paddled all of them. They get their spot. You're you're a you're an old school friend of the foundation. You got your spot. And then that number is growing. And so our, our ability to take on new paddlers is harder and harder. And it's, so it's not like an audition, but there is an application process where we want to hear your story and we want to know why this is important to you and why it means so much to you before we let anybody on the water because we just can't let everybody that wants yeah. to. 
And so now the waiting list is 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 very very long. Is there an after party people can attend, or is there a way absolutely? They can you? That's what I was going to say. The okay. best part is there's no limit on the after party. It's at the LCRA lawn, right at the end at the Redbud Center, yes. which didn't know existed before a few years ago. We it used to be at Hula Hut. It was a big party, but there was like some co mingling and people are trying to have dinner. And like, what is going on here? And then now we're at the LCRA lawn. It's all ours. I think we had like five or six hundred people there last year. Yeah. And on it, what day? It is what awesome. Time? It is Monday, September 11th, and the party starts at 5.30. 5.30 p.m. 5.30 p.m., and there's raffles. There's all kinds of games and fun stuff to do, like bring the kids. It is a beautiful site. The LCRA lawn, LCRA lawn is awesome. That is a little further down from where people launch boats? Correct. Okay. Yep. It's so as close as you can get to the dam as possible. Like, basically, if you're heading west on Lake Austin, you just right after you pass Redbud, make a left. Okay. And it's right there. And that is a yeah. It's just another place and another way for people to who can't paddle or didn't paddle to support their friends who are, or just to support the cause. And then really the that's like nothing to us. The more the merrier. But the real effort in, in helping is the volunteers. Like the amount of volunteers it takes to put on a two hundred person twenty one mile paddle on Lake Austin, whether it's support boats or setting up a party for five hundred people or tearing down the party for 500 people yeah. or just logistically moving 200 paddle boards on and off a lake in the span of 30 minutes. Um, volunteer opportunities are, are everywhere for this. And that's what I did. So I was uh, competing. So every year DTC was right in the middle of track and field season. It was like the week before the U S championships. And I'm like, I love you Chelsea, but I can't, I physically were, you don't want me to paddle and then go try to do a decathlon. Yeah. This isn't yeah. going to work out. Be sore. So I was, I was, volunteer aficionado helping do whatever I needed to do emceeing on the party barge like we take out the big old riverboat out there and meet them at the 360 bridge and paddle in with them and they're we're blasting music and banging cowbells and supporting them because it's a it's a long day like it's not a race it's just a long day what's the uh, from when they start to when they finish what, what's sort of the average time for the 200 it depends on the wind and the weather but you usually try to make it eight or nine hours so if we're starting at pushing off at the low water crossing at Mansfield Dam around 7, mm -hmm. 7.15. Mm -hmm. Everyone's on the water at like 6.30. Like, got to get on the water early. And we're pushing out 7, 7.15 and trying to be at the party at 5.30. Yeah, if you have not trained for that, you are, you're not going to get out of bed the next day. You, you are yep. going to be in pain. There's a, yeah, little things you didn't know you had, they'll, they'll be sore. And, Dude, and blisters and yeah. all that stuff. And it's that's the fun of it is that, you're, most people are really terrified. They're like, oh, I'm not going to be able to do it. That's so far. And then they get out there with 200 like-minded people, and they're sharing stories and developing relationships, and there's community out on the water that people don't even realize they've been 18 miles, 19 miles. Like, oh, we've only got two to go? Okay. Like, it really is a special, special thing out there. You get, and, and just going through that with people just creates these, this community and bonds and stuff that I think we take for granted a lot of times of what it means to do something difficult. Trey, uh, impressive life, impressive what you're doing, impressive passion uh, and selflessness with, with Flatwater. Um, we will post the links to everything. We'll try to get the – we will launch this podcast as quickly as possible. Uh, it'll be out of sync, but we'll, we'll get it in the rotation. We'll get that yeah. editorial, and we'll drop all the links for people to donate uh, for this uh, amazing cause. Um, congrats, man. Awesome. Thanks for coming in. And for the listeners – Whatever platform you listen to this on, Spotify, Apple, please go like, leave comments, uh, 
constructive comments. That's how we improve, and we appreciate taking the time to do that. All right, guys, we'll see you next time.